today we are going to move into a topic that is always important, but uh, has really risen to the surface the last uh, several weeks, and even more so since the death of George Floyd a few weeks ago. And many of you obviously are up to date with um, with what's been going on and with um, with with the pulse as well. And uh, and also, I think for many of us, a desire to learn. So today we're starting a two-week series um, on race, justice in the church. And it's, it's too big of a topic, actually, to even cover in one or two sittings. But today, I'm so encouraged to have a guest with us. And you can already see her on the screen, Dina Smith. Hi, Dina. Hi. Uh, good to see you. Good. Thank you for being with us. So Dina is a writer, and uh, she leads uh, creative writing workshops in schools and community centers, uh, helping youth really grow in this, in this creative writing, but also overlapping uh, areas of learning about justice and learning about history um, in this. And so it's so great to have Dina with us today. She's also a spoken word artist and her husband, Jason, as well, is a writer. And they're both very involved um, in the Black community and in, and in the arts and in music and in so many different things. So it's so great. And Dina is also an extended part of our church community. Yeah, for several years, a few years back, she was involved in kids ministry, and um, and now we get to see her and Jason and Ife as well, and they've often performed in some of our gatherings as well with their gifts. So anyways, Dina, it's great to have you with us today. Uh, you want to say anything about yourself briefly before we start? It, uh, everything that you said is true. I also am a fifth generation Canadian, mom of a sixth generation Canadian. And I just mentioned that because when we have these conversations, people often um, don't know that about Canadian history and black history in Canada. So I think it's important to mention that there have been black communities in Canada for a really, really long time. So this is not an American problem by any stretch of the imagination. It's important to know that. That is, that's super helpful. Thank you, Dina. Um, so just for some of you listening, why we're, why we're doing that, why I'm interested in doing this today, um, I think I've almost felt like I've been grieving the last few weeks and uh, trying to understand what I don't sometimes understand as well, and also trying to process what's been going on. And so my heart in this, and I hope it's the heart of our community, which I've been trying to seed a little bit with some of my words lately, is a posture of learning a posture of humility, and I'll say it again, of understanding sometimes what we don't understand. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping that we can learn today. So this two-part series will be learning from Dina today and then backing up into the scriptures next week and uh, seeing what the scriptures have to say to us. So that, that's going to be our approach. So let's just start. Dina, help us understand racism in Canada. I don't know if that's too big of a question, but I'll let you jump in. <laughs> it's a huge question, but it's a good question. And I think it's an important one to talk about right now. So um, first of all, I am a person who tends to, uh, I, I love a good laugh and I like to smile and I like to be happy. So I do, I do interject comedy and sort of smart remarks whenever I can because um, because if not, we would be very, very depressed. So if I had to describe racism in Canada, I would say that it is the same as in the United States, except ours tastes like maple syrup sometimes. So um, people have, for as long as there have been Black people in Canada, suffered the same sorts of things that we often consider part of the problem south of the border. There was slavery in Canada. Um, there was... 
a history of exclusion from resources. There has been a history of segregation. Uh, there was a civil rights movement. All of the things that we look across the border and say, oh, isn't that a shame, um, happened here as well. And it is particularly difficult in a place where there is such a high level of denial to then turn around and talk about it. I think that's one of the major differences between here and what happens in the States is that there's no denying in the States mm -hmm. what happened, but in Canada, people still are finding out for like, the, no, I never learned that there was slavery here. Well, it wasn't taught, but there was. And I never learned that there was segregation in Canada. It wasn't taught, but there was. And so to date, there are issues with uh, law enforcement, um, with redlining, with, um, institutions of higher learning and banking and all of the things that fall out of what happens when there is any kind of racist ideology. Mm -hmm. uh, people I know experience these things. I've experienced these things. I don't know anyone who hasn't really. Yeah. So at some level. So, so it's kind of camouflaged, but it's very real. It's real. And it is, that's what makes it hard to talk about because people um, don't believe the lived experiences. I've had conversations with people who've said, it's, is it really? Or they seem surprised. And that's, I think, an aspect of frustration right now is that in places where it is acknowledged, people can act in a certain way. In places where it is not acknowledged, you have the additional burden of kind of proving what your life experience has been. And that is very harmful and hurtful as yeah. well. And, you know, I've been, I like to read and learn about stuff. And, and so I've, I've liked to read about this as well to help me learn. And I've been actually, you know, what pops up often is books more yeah. with the context and history of South of the Border. And yeah. now I find myself researching, well, wait a second, how do I understand racism in Canada, in Montreal, in Quebec? And, and mm -hmm. so, so that's been, so there's less content, but it's available. And so yeah. now I've got another, another thing to keep exploring. Um, so the, you described when we had a conversation last week that these protests are like a fever. Mm -hmm. and, um, so, and I found that was interesting. So you know, help, maybe help us understand what the roots of, of the protests are and why it's erupted in this way now. Absolutely. So my heart has been so heavy uh, watching these things, Jason and I are having a really hard time processing this. Um, I know people who look like George Floyd. I know people in Montreal who have had really scary encounters with law enforcement and and other individuals um, just based on the color of their skin. And so when I saw what happened to George Floyd, I was, I was hurt. I was angry. Um, I felt hopeless. I, I felt all of the things that everyone feels watching this, and yet knowing that the there was not a lot that could be done in the moment, I was happy when I saw people start to protest. And then the news cycle started, people are protesting, they're being violent, et cetera, et cetera. And I had to really sit down and think about what to say and how to explain to our daughter what's happening. So. For me, first, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said that that a riot is the language of the unheard, right? You can only push someone so far. You can only harm someone so much before they react. And so he understood that well. Um, for me, I think about it this way. Our communities, Black communities, North and South of the border, 
between Alaska and Argentina have been subject to really awful treatment uh, of various kinds and to various degrees for a long time. There is a human, a very basic human desire to live a decent life. And when you are prevented from doing so, um, it is natural to be upset. It is natural to be angry. And so after George, George Floyd's death, um, we watched that family start to grieve. We watched that community erupt, knowing that I believe it was Philando Castile, who had also been killed by police, was from Minneapolis as well. It had happened before, and they were tired of it. They, they, they were tired of it, and it was too much. And so the city erupted into protest. There were people who were friends and family uh, and part of the community of George Floyd who were um, grieving. So that's one aspect. There were people from the larger Minneapolis community who were grieving and angry, okay? So those are two sorts of people, people who are directly affected and connected to the person who was taken away and people in the city who have witnessed it too often. Those are people that are understandably angry and frustrated. There were other black people who maybe didn't know the family, maybe weren't from Minneapolis, who are also frustrated and angry because it had happened in their communities. They've seen it happen too much. Anger and frustration is normal and natural. But to me, all of this is like a body taking in some kind of toxin, right? Black communities have been subject to racism and racist ideology, which is toxic. And after a while, the body gets sick. And so a protest is like a fever. You can function when you have a fever. You can be coherent when you have a fever. A fever can take you down a little bit. A fever can take you out a lot. But a protest for me is a fever. It is under control. A riot is like vomiting. Nobody can stop their body from vomiting. That is when the body has had enough and the body just says, out. And whatever happens, it has to be, it has just has to continue until it's done. And so for me, those are riots. Those are people who are knocking things over. Those are people who are tearing down fences. Those are people who are throwing things. Those are people who are yelling at the top of their lungs. Those are people who are obviously angry and, and even destructive. And, and, and that's a mess. That's what that is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's one group of people, though, for me. The people who are grieving and the people who are angry. Those are one, that's one group. And so the you're saying that sometimes uh, the pain as, is so much like when you feel like you got a vomit, it just comes out and sometimes <laughs> it can erupt in not the, not the healthiest way. But now, nope. you, but now there, but there's some people have said, oh, protests have, um, you know, well, if it's such an important protest, and Martin Luther King also, you know, pushed nonviolence, what, what about all these other pieces? So, I don't know, I've noticed different groups at, at protests. They're not always part of the protest. Do you, like, how do you describe the, the big picture? For some people who kind of look skeptical at what goes on at a protest and then say, well, that can't be what George Floyd wanted or what the black community wanted. Like, how, how, do, you, how do you respond to that? Sometimes it's not, you know, sometimes that, that level of anger and frustration and hopelessness and grief overflows. And it becomes behavior that is less productive. Um, but again, I believe that's part of that process of getting that out of their system. I'm not mad at those people. I understand that. There are people who are not grieving, who are not angry or frustrated or sad, 
who are there for their own purposes. So they have other grievances with law enforcement, with police, with government, whatever the case might be. Some of those are even people who are malicious, who have malicious intent towards the Black community or any group that's pushing for some kind of equality or justice. And so they're there just to break stuff, to be breaking stuff, to maybe provoke something, to start a fire, to go further than those other groups of people. They're there strictly to cause damage. And we've seen them. Some of them have been identified. Uh, people have talked about some people, um, some of those people being off-duty police officers, because again, if uh, a protest becomes illegal because of certain activity, they can shut it down. And so there's an agenda there um, that is not about George Floyd or any of the other people who've been killed. It's not about justice. It's not about um, pushing things forward for equality. They're, they're there for one purpose, and that's essentially to cause damage and to get the protests shut down. And then the next... Mm -hmm. Go on, no, go on. Yeah, what's the next group? And then the last group of people we saw video of um, leaving Steve's with two or three guitars. They're, they're opportunists. Mm -hmm. They're there yeah. not yeah. to cause damage for damage sake, but if a store window gets broken, they're going to help themselves. And they're so like, there's a crowd, there's chaos. I can benefit. Let me jump in. I'm not here for the cause. I'm here for the, for the damage. Yeah, no, that's yeah. sad. And that's true that people will jump into a, into a crowd to take advantage of it, you know? Yeah. And that's yeah. unfortunate. Now you, especially you, now that people are wearing masks, uh, it's <laughs> just it's perfect. It's a perfect yeah. setup for really, really m malicious behavior to happen. That's true. Now there's other ways to protest or contribute to this, and I know you know particularly you and Jason. You guys are kind of I know you as very quiet individuals, especially your husband, and uh, yet you have so much depth. So what other like just maybe list one or two ways. Of that that contributes to the conversation that's not necessarily looks like a protest yeah uh it's hard right now because i mean i think if if not for the if not for the the pandemic um i would have been probably a lot more involved in many of the protests that happened um i'm caring for the health of our home so i've been staying out of it but um, there, are, there are many ways. I think being informed is important. I think acknowledging what people are saying, making sure that you're getting information from good sources is important. Talking about the subject with your family. A lot of people want to say, um, I don't see color and um, so we don't do that at our house. But I don't think that's a very healthy thing because God made color. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't exist. The problem is that there are stigmas attached to certain people. Mm. So it's not the color that's the problem, it's the stigma. So I think we need to discuss these things in our homes and prepare our children to interact with all kinds of folks and not to be surprised by their best friend then who is from another ethnicity who has to know about this in order to keep themselves safe. Mm. I see. Yeah, no, that's good. So what? It, so I'm, maybe that maybe leads to this question: How can we learn? Like, le I'm a learner, but particularly sometimes it's so easy to jump in and want to say something or do something or maybe react out of either knowledge or ignorance, right? But how how can we learn? What can we learn right like right now? Uh, I think what you're doing is is exactly the right thing. You talked about being in a in a posture of listening. 
I think, like I said, one of the most frustrating things about being Black in Montreal, being Black in Quebec or Canada for that matter, is that lived experiences are ignored or minimized. People think, oh, it's not as bad as somewhere else, so it's not that bad. Mm -hmm. um, just recently, I saw a news story about a young man who in Laval who was uh, dragged out of his car by police. They grabbed him by the hair. I mean, who does that? You know what I mean? They're, they're, policing is a difficult job. You encounter dangerous people. You encounter the worst situations. But at the same time, these are human beings and have to be accountable to behave as human beings. And so I think understanding that being uh, in favor of Black Lives Matter does not mean being anti-police, does not mean being anti-law and order, does not mean being pro-anarchy. Knowing what people are really doing this for, the goals of saying we need restorative justice, we need social justice, knowing what that terminology means, even for the people who say defund police, what does that mean? A lot of people are saying, oh, everybody's going to be running around in the streets. That's not what that means. Mm -hmm. That's about relocating uh, resources so that when there is a wellness check call, maybe social workers go, maybe nurses go, maybe people who have advanced training for people with mental health issues goes, mm -hmm. as opposed to someone who is authorized to use deadly force, right? And you know, that, that's helpful because so many people when they hear, and me too, when I heard defund the police, you're automatically thinking, well, I mean, I think we need the police. Mm -hmm. So how can we defund it? Why would we defund it? And then I started to read some articles about it and, and look at some valid sources. And then I started to understand, oh, it's about helping the police and reverting some funds to specialized mm -hmm. help, to specialized people with some specialization, right? That can be on the Absolutely. scene when necessary, where a cop might not be equipped for it, they can have a partner that is or vice versa. And then that started to make sense. It's like, okay, the goal here is actually a safer approach and a safer community, not to, not to defund the police specifically, you know? The goal, the goal is public safety, yeah. but we don't have to do it the way we've been doing it for the past hundred years, that's all. My neighbor said, you know, it's exactly like how recently they've changed how when an ambulance gets called, it's actually first responders or the, is the fire department, you know, mm -hmm. and they do that for a specific reason. They've come to realize it's better if they arrive first before the ambulance, there's some expertise and it's kind of nuancing that into the police force in some way. But anyways, we can talk about that for sure. Okay. So let me, let me ask this. Well, I want to ask you what the church can do or learn, but what does justice look like? Before I, we ask about the church, what does justice look like? So it's a huge question, but I, I heard a brilliant quote by Cornel West. I've, heard, I've watched him say it in an interview, and it makes perfect sense to me. So Cornel West says that justice is what love looks like in public. Mm. So it is not an abstract thing at all. If you love someone, you do not want them harmed. If you love someone, you do not want them disproportionately incarcerated. If you love someone, you want them to have equal protection under the law. If you love someone, you want their families to be safe. If you love someone, you want their communities to have clean water. And I mean, this goes across the board to all of the situations that are happening um, in Canada. And as I say, um, as I say that about water, I'm reminded that one of the other frustrating pieces about this is that all of this is happening, all of these arguments, all of this energy is exploding 
in a place uh, that is really stolen land, right? So the people who are in government and in law enforcement and so on and so forth are doing this in a space that actually was never discovered, but was actually invaded and occupied. And so there is inherent violence in the way we've done things to get to where we are today. And I think glossing over that and glossing over what's been done to First Nations and Métis and Inuit people in this country, you know, it, 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 it makes me feel like the moral authority in the conversation is not what people think it is, right? So I think we really need to just rethink, how did we get here? Who's benefiting from how things are? Why is that the case? And if we as the church are commanded to love, then how do we do that better? Okay, awesome. Dina, so I wanna ask this question. How can the church be light right now? How can the church be light right now? I think doing what you're doing is important. I think the church can be a light by supporting um, activities uh, that support this movement. So I don't, I don't know if every church is going to put something on their social media that says we support the Black Lives Matter or other organizations. Um, some people are donating to make sure that people's legal costs can be taken care of. Some people are making sure that protesters have basic things like water uh, at protests. Some people are just being prayerful or just, I've received messages from people saying, you know, are you okay? I think that's one of the things is really treating this in a very personal way. Do I know somebody directly affected by this and what can I do for them? And then in a public way by making a statement. Also, as Christians, we, are, are told we are, we are the ones who have the good news. So to encourage someone uh, and let them know that they're not alone is important, but also to speak the truth when it is necessary is important. And whether that happens within a church setting, at work, in a social setting with family. I know people that are really having a hard time talking to their family about this because some family members are really entrenched in ways that don't acknowledge this pain. But at the end of the day, this is the story of the Samaritan. Somebody is bleeding, somebody is hurt, somebody is beaten. Are you gonna walk by them? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah, like Cornell West's quote is basically, love your neighbor as yourself. Exactly. Right? And that comes before the, the Good Samaritan story and kind of wrapped up into that. So no, that's, that's so helpful. And I'm thinking of our church our church too. And, and I mean, we can personally be out what, you know, I, I've, and you could like correct me here because I've tried to just be intentional with some of my neighbors um, mm -hmm. just to have like, just stop longer and say, Hey, you know, and then have a conversation and just see where the conversation lands. And it's actually been really quite fruitful and interesting and helpful and positive too. But I don't know, is that something that is that seen as helpful? It all matters because everything that we do that promotes equality, that promotes justice, that promotes fairness can make a difference. I can't be at every table. I can't be everywhere. Mm -hmm. But if I know that somebody who is at that table is in favor of justice, is in favor of doing what's right, is in favor of calling out a program or policy or something that is 
restrictive or exclusive or down absolutely racist, then I can have faith in that organization. I can believe that what's happening there is is I, I can feel comfortable, you know, if if we're sending our if we're choosing a school and I know that that principal believes that there will be no anti-racist, there will be no racism in the school. We consider this, we have zero policy, zero tolerance for racism in the school. I can feel comfortable sending my daughter there. If I'm not sure about that, the weight of that anxiety is really, really heavy. And that falls on Black families without anybody ever acknowledging that, that mm -hmm. our children are sent to schools where we don't know how people feel of individual teachers or of of administration we don't know how they feel about our children yet we have no set no choice about sending them to school so what do we do the more people can can be overt about this position that we will not tolerate this and it and it doesn't have to be hateful it, it can be a loving gentle and very strong position that we just will not tolerate this the better i think we'll all be i hear you okay and that's, and I, I would think too, um, like personally that that's so helpful. And then as a church, mm -hmm. we can be learning, like really be honest about, well, understanding what we don't understand, mm -hmm. hearing what we haven't heard, possibly, putting ourselves in somebody else's shoes. Um, yeah, and I think wrestling, like when you said the Cornell quote, it reminds me of any time I read something from Jesus, and I'm not equating Cornell with Jesus, but it, it alludes to the statement of Jesus that it, I always have to wrestle with it. I always have to ask, oh, wait, if Jesus is Lord of my life and he says this, what does it mean for everybody in my life, for everybody that I come into contact with? And that becomes, I think that ultimately becomes a Christian thing because I always want to wrestle with the words of Jesus and what that means anytime, anywhere, all the time, right? And I, I guess I'm not, I'm never excluded from wrestling with the words of Jesus in what that means to love other people in the, in my world or in, in the world, you know? Never. And we're, we're commanded to, to try to be like him. So what, this is the ultimate, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do at a protest? If he saw someone being maced, peppered, sprayed, tear gassed, what would he do? Yeah. He would heal, he would comfort, he would pray for he would he would settle those waters down right he there's there's no i mean this is the story uh, throughout that he is not on the side of the persecutor he's not on the side of the oppressor mm -hmm. he's on the side of the one who is wounded and the one who needs care and i think that's important to remember yeah yeah no that's that's amazing so what we're going to just end with this really briefly because we could keep talking and talking and this could become oh, a long time. But my last question, and we'll kind of wrap this up this way. What, what, what keeps you going right now? Like what just, what keeps you going? Um, I could end in a flood of tears talking about it. Uh, I, you know, in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of everything that's going on, I'm grateful because we are safe and sound at home. We have enough to eat. We're not missing anything. And so we, we have the energy to, to give to supporting people in this cause because I'm not, we're not hungry. We're not, there's nothing going on with us that is terrible, right? Mm -hmm. So we're grateful. We have so much to be thankful for in the midst of all of this. That's number one. Number two, I watched a lot of the funeral yesterday. 
and I watched, uh, I think it was Kurt Carr, and I watched those people sing, and I watched them pray, and I watched them worship. In the middle of everything that was going on, I thought, you know, this is the faith that has led to our survival through all of this. You know, I mean, it's the kind of thing that if that's not, if this situation doesn't cause you to have a crisis of faith, you know, if you're not sturdy and solid in where you are, I don't know what is. And so for me, I listened to uh, Reverend Sharpton talk about, you know, about George Floyd being the rejected stone and look what's happened and prayerfully things will change because of this. And it, it was an awful thing that happened to him, you know, and they watched it. And yet they said, you know, we are going to pray and we're going to call out on God and we're going to expect to be answered. And they sang, God will take care of you, not once, more than once. You know, that faith, watching them have faith that they were going to be okay in the midst of this, as so many people have done who have faced these situations, is amazing to me. So I am a person who has had... Um, prayers answered. I am a person who has had supernatural experiences of, of being kept safe when it just didn't make any sense. I, I know what God can do. And so I believe. Mm. I mean, it doesn't mean that I'm not hurt. It doesn't mean that I'm not angry, that I don't want to throw stuff because this is so frustrating. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, I believe that we can be better. So yeah, and that's, that's amazing because the I mean, in a sense, you're really saying my faith is is helping me get through this. No question. And and uh, you know, I, I I that it's impossible to say everybody in the black commun- community that's the case for, but 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 there is a percentage that that is a huge piece. And um, I mean, Jesus said, you know, you will face trials and tribulations, but take heart, I've overcome the world. That sense of overcoming that comes from Him is um, is powerful. Is powerful and. And I say that really cautiously because someone can tritely say, well, just trust Jesus to get you through this like every other situation. And someone might say that without ever, ever experiencing what some have experienced. And yet at the same time, Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God is so powerful that he is, he can be present, you know? So I believe yeah, that this complex. Situation, I, I believe that the situation uh, is is evolving, but I also understand, and I think it's important to know. I don't think that Black communities have any more cheeks to turn. Like I think people have reached here, and so our faith is in my faith. I can't speak for everybody. My faith is in a, an omniscient and omnipresent God. My my faith is that this can be dealt with and will be dealt with in the meantime in our day-to-day activities i think it's important for us to do something yeah. right this is a point where faith without works is is not going to get it we we need to do something and it doesn't have to be putting ourselves in danger but we have to do something and i the, the church cannot be silent right now it cannot well, thanks, Dina. I, I so appreciate that. I kind of want to jump into next week's message and just <laughs> get into some scripture. Uh, so so he, here's what we're going to do. We're going to stop here. Uh, okay. We're going to back into scripture next week mm-hmm. and uh, and allow the scriptures to inform us and allow 
uh, we kind of did the reverse of this where we got, we tried to hear the heart of the issue. And now next week, we're going to hopefully hear the heart of God uh, in the scriptures and, uh, and then let the, the Holy Spirit work in the middle of that. You know, I know who, some of you are listening today as you're listening to Dina, but you maybe come from a, a different place. Like your uh, Dina described in a conversation, some people need milk on this topic and some people need meat on this topic. And, and we vary. I'm no doubt that those of you are listening vary on that. Um, so our hope is really is to learn, is to grow, is to be open. And next week, as we jump into more scripture together, uh, we're, we're, we trust that the Lord is going to lead us and guide us. And so, so that's our heart. So I'm going to just pause and pray, and, um, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Okay, Dina, thank you. Thank you thank so much. You. Thank you. God, we pause right now, and um, we ask that you give us a heart to understand what we don't understand. Give us a heart to see um, hurt when hurt is there. God, give us a heart to sometimes see things that might be invisible to some. Um, help us to wrestle with Jesus as Lord of our lives and what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. And so we just, we invite uh, the work of your Holy Spirit in this. Thank you for the opportunity to hear from Dina and to learn from her and her experience. We pray for her and Jason and Ife, their daughter. Uh, we lift up uh, the Black community to you today, God, as well. Um, we pray for the hurt and we, God, we pray for a sense of hope. Um, and ultimately, just even hearing Dina's words, we pray for your good news to spread in this world. Um, and may it start uh, in our own lives and hearts and relationships, a glimpse of your kingdom at work. And we humbly, we humbly come before you in that way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Dina. God bless you. You God bless you too.